in his humanity, Jesus died. He was buried like the rest of humanity that has come before us. He came the first time as the representative of humanity, but death was not the end of his story. For though he was buried, though Satan in that first gospel, Genesis 3.15, he bruised his heel upon the cross. Jesus was put into the grave. Three days later, he resurrected from the tomb. Welcome to The Cleansing Word. We invite you to stay with us as Pastor John Pinnell of Calvary Chapel Lake Villa takes us through a verse-by-verse study from God's Word. Each Monday through Friday, we'll be airing messages to encourage you in your faith that you might grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope that you enjoy this broadcast, and I'll return at the close of this teaching to give you more information about our church and how you can obtain a copy of this message. Now here's Pastor John with today's message from God's Word. Today we want to look at a message entitled, Unto Us. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. We're going to look at the first part of verse 6, the child is born. The second part of that verse, he is called Wonderful. And then verse 7, he sits upon the throne of David. So Father, we ask that you would bless our time and your word today, Lord. I pray that we would uh, take this very familiar passage, prophecy concerning the coming of Christ. Lord, that you would speak new meaning into our hearts with it today. Not something, Lord, that we merely have memorized or can sing, but something, Lord, that we gain new understanding, fresh understanding, or maybe merely a reminder of the plans that you have for this world. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So he is born a child. Verse 6 begins by saying, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, And the government will be upon his shoulder. He is born a child. The very first gospel that's given to us in scripture is Genesis 3.15. It's where God is cursing Adam and Eve, but he also curses Satan. And in the cursing of Satan, he says in Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. This is called, by the theologians, the simple term is the first gospel, the first prophecy concerning the coming of Jesus Christ. And it's telling us that Jesus will have authority over Satan. He will crush, the NIV says, I normally hardly ever refer to the NIV every once in a while. I like how they word things. But in the Hebrew, it's the same word. And so they just use emphasis 
on the same word, they said crushed versus bruised. And so in the New King James, the King James, they use bruised in both places. But the thought is, when you talk about the head, you talk about having dominance over, you're ruling over. And when you talk about the feet, Satan will bruise your heel. He's going to trip you up, but he's not going to have victory over you. He may stumble you, the thought of the cross, that there was the death, but Christ would be victorious through his glorious resurrection from the grave. So from that time forward, the people of faith, they were looking for the coming Messiah. And it's not very long in the very next chapter, we discover that Eve had the promised Messiah on her mind when she gave birth to her firstborn son, Cain. For she declared in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, saying, I've gotten a man from the Lord. Now, the way she phrased this in the Hebrew has more of a sense that this is the promised Messiah. I've gotten a man from the Lord. But she did not get the promised Messiah. Cain was no Messiah, but in reality would become the world's first murderer. When Isaiah first declared this prophecy to Israel, around 3,200 years had passed, and humanity was still looking for a Savior. Yet many things had transpired since that Genesis 3.15 prophecy. This is where the covenant that God made with Abraham comes into place. As Abraham became the father of the nation of Israel, where God said in Genesis 17, 19, then God said to Abraham, when Abraham told the Lord that Ishmael, his firstborn son by Hagar, was sufficient to be that heir, and God said, no, this is what he said, Genesis 17, 19, no, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. No, see what happened is that God had spoken a word to Abraham. Maybe you've had a promise that you have felt that you had received from the Lord, that God has spoken a word to you, but time goes on. Time passes and it seems like was I hearing from the Lord, you know, the scratching of the head, the wondering, is, was this really Jesus or was this me? I'm not sure. Now, Abraham had this word spoken by the Lord, but he thought, and this is always a dangerous thing. I'll just remind you, I'll do it again someday at some point in my life. You'll do it as well. It's always dangerous when we think we need to help the Lord out, that Lord, you're you're not quick enough. You're not getting it done the way I think you should be getting it done. So let me give you a hand. Abraham basically said to God, let me give you a hand. It was Sarah who convinced Abraham of this, but Abraham had the choice. But it was Sarah who, you know, at 89 years old, it's like, I'm not going to have a child. Would you quit pestering me? Here, take my handmaid, Hagar. And she gave birth to a son. But this was not the promised son. This was a work of the flesh. And consider this. To this day, there is a struggle between the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac. 
Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, and they struggle to this day. When we try to help God out and we try to lend him a helping hand, we, in the work of our flesh, will bring trouble upon ourselves, upon others, and maybe upon the whole world. But Paul looked back at this passage in Galatians 3.16, and he rightly applied this promise to Abraham. He says, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say to seeds as of many, but as of one and your seed who is the Christ. Now, this is an area that I do not like in the translation of the New King James Bible in Genesis 17, 19, even though they know Paul's commentary from uh, Galatians 3.16, Paul clearly says he did not say seeds, plural, as in many, but seed, singular, as in one. The New King James in Genesis 17.19, they said, and his descendants, plural, as in many, when the word is actually singular, as in one. So I think the New King James poorly translated that for us, especially because we have the Bible telling us what was meant there. When you say descendants as many, you talk about the nation. When you say descendant or seed as one, you talk about Jesus. The child who was to be born was the promised seed of Abraham, who is the Christ. Also unto us a son is given. This child was to be a son, which is referring to his deity, the son of God. Jesus, who is fully human, but also fully God. This is known to us, and we talk about this during the Christmas season, because it's the incarnation. God became flesh and dwelt among us. Incarnation is a compound Latin word that means in flesh. The incarnation is a foundational principle of the church itself, believing that the eternal word of God, Jesus Christ, appeared in human form. As John 1.14 tells us, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. As humanity's representative, it is important for Jesus to experience humanity from birth to death that which we will all experience unless the Lord comes to rapture his church. We would be of the generation that would not experience death. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed for men to die once, but after that, the judgment. And yet the judgment that Jesus faced was not his own, but ours. Hebrews 9, 28 tells us, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, In his humanity, Jesus died. He was buried like the rest of humanity that has come before us. He came the first time as the representative of humanity, but death was not the end of his story. For though he was buried, though Satan in that first gospel, Genesis 3.15, he bruised his heel upon the cross. Jesus was put into the grave Three days later, he resurrected from the tomb. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Isaiah 9.6, a son was given. 
given by our Heavenly Father, that whosoever believes him, him should not perish but have everlasting life. And the Son was not only given for the nation of Israel, but for the whole world, for whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now it tells us that the government will be upon his shoulder. This really speaks about in the Hebrew, it refers to the weight of responsibility being placed upon the shoulder. Perhaps we could liken this. I was thinking about the dubbing of a knight. Someone coming to knighthood. A young man would, who would become a knight would go through the ranks um, serving the knights until he became this point where he was a squire. And from a squire, he would become a knight. When he became a knight, he would spend the night in prayer. He was given a sword that he would lay before the altar, before the Lord. It's a two-edged sword for a purpose. And I'll tell you that in a moment. But then in the ceremony where he was knighted, he would kneel before his king or perhaps before another knight. And the person doing the knighting is known as the dubber, the one who would take the sword or maybe take his hand or even sometimes with force would enact a blow upon his shoulder to remind him to not allow anyone ever to do that to him again. But he would be knighted from the movies. We might see this with a sword and lightly being tapped on one shoulder and then the other. That would be a kind way of someone being knighted. There's one movie recently where the father was knighting his son and he struck him hard with the blow as a reminder. And later on in that movie, after the father had died and the son was knighting another man, again, he struck him hard with a blow and said the same words of his father to him. The knight's two-edged sword reminded him that one edge represented justice and the other edge represented loyalty, for the knights were sworn to protect the poor and the weak. As for the kings of Israel and Judah, it became a custom at their christening that a key would be physically laid on their shoulder to symbolize the responsibility of the office that they were about to take. And we see this twice in Scripture, at least twice in Scripture. Isaiah twenty-two twenty-two says, The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, so he will open and no one will shut, and he will shut and no one will open. The key is laid on his shoulder. Now, who gets that key? Ultimately, Jesus Christ. For in Revelation 3, 7, And the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, These things says, he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David and opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. The key, the government shall be upon his shoulder. Jesus will not merely be the king of Israel, though of the whole world. In Daniel seven thirteen and 14, Daniel, I love this. I don't know how your sleep goes at night. But Daniel described his like this. I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all the peoples, 
Nations and languages should serve him. His dominion would be an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. I like Daniel. I was watching the night visions. You know, we go to bed at night. We think, man, I hope sleep well, dream sweet dreams. And Daniel's thinking, I wonder what the Lord's going to show me tonight. They didn't have television to kind of mess with our minds and we end up dreaming something we've seen in the day on tv or hearing or music or something like that they have so much more clarity i believe clarity of mind that it wasn't crowded out by the things of the world although they had many things in their world that could crowd things out just like in our world the child born is the promised seed of Abraham. The son given is the incarnate Christ, the son of God. The government that would be laid on his shoulder speaks about the weight, the responsibility of, as the descendant, the seed, singular, of the house of David, who becomes the ruler of the whole world. This is one of the reasons that there are religions that hate the church and hate Israel because in the prophecies concerning the Messiah, it teaches that Messiah will rule this earth one day. And the child who is born the Son, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He shall also be called Wonderful. In verse 6 again, the second half of that verse, his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Depending on the translation of the Bible that you have, and just know in the Hebrew and the Greek that they did not have punctuation. And so translating can be challenging at times. No punctuation, no commas, no periods, no beginning and end of sentences. The Greek was written in all capital letters. I mean, you didn't even have that to help you out. So some translations say that wonderful and counselor should be one word, wonderful counselor, singular. Others, wonderful counselor, separate. The Hebrew actually has two separate words. We'll go with that. I wrote in my notes, and I know this is not sufficient. His name will be called. And I wrote my notes, attributes, characteristics of the Messiah, but these are more than just a descriptive nature of the Messiah. His name will be called. It speaks about the name of Christ himself as the Messiah. But as far as the attributes, it helps us to look at it as an attribute to kind of understand it a little better. What does it mean to be called wonderful? What does it mean to be called counselor or mighty God or everlasting father? And that's why it's important to look at these also as the attributes of Christ, maybe giving us a better understanding of each of these names. And the Hebrew word could mean wonderful. It could mean miracle or marvel. His name would be called Marvel. When the angel of the Lord appeared before Manoah, the father of Samson, Manoah prepared a meal for the angel of the Lord. But instead of the angel of the Lord Eating that meal he prepared, he set it on a rock. He, it went up in smoke. It became an offering to the Lord. And Manoah then inquired about the angel's name. 
And the angel responded, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? He didn't tell him his name. He said, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? The appearance of the angel of the Lord is to believe to have been a Christophany, a pre-Bethlehem appearance of Jesus Christ, as seen in the Old Testament, here with Manoah, the father of Samson. Here's where I like, I picked on translations, pick on translations of the Bible day for Pastor John. I like the King James and the New King James because they help us out in understanding angel of the Lord here. They have it capitalized, capitalized the A in angel, also Lord in all caps. And so that would be the angel of Yahweh. So it tells us it's not the angel of Adonai. It's the angel of Yahweh appeared before Manoah. But it's believed to be a Christophany, a pre-Bethlehem appearance of Jesus Christ. And this Hebrew word wonderful could also mean incomprehensible, extraordinary. It's just something that can't be explained on human terms. Revelation 19, 12, speaking about the name of Christ, it says his eyes were like a flame of fire. On his head, he wore many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. Why do you ask my name? It's incomprehensible to you. You're not going to get it even if I told you. He's also a counselor. The Hebrew word refers to giving counsel or giving advice. It speaks about the omniscience of God. In Isaiah 40, verses 12 through 14, it says, Who has measured the water in the hollow of his hand, measured the heavens in the span, and calculated the dust of the earth in measure? Who has weighed the mountains and scaled in the hills in a balance? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has taught him, with whom did he take counsel or give instruction and taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge or showed him the way of understanding? He is counselor. No one taught God. God is from the beginning. Often non-believers will ask a believer, well, if God created the world, who created God? The Bible nowhere ever speaks about God being created. The Bible speaks that God is, and that is the belief that God is. God has always been. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. That simply God is. And the Bible never tries to convince you that God is. The Bible is written from the perspective that God is, and then as a response, to that, we as humans then need to be, and then we can fill it in from there. He is counselor. Here in this passage in Isaiah 40, verses 12 through 14, Isaiah gives five rhetorical questions that remind the readers of God's great power. He is unique in all the universe, great knowledge and creative power. All which were God's were by right of his existence, by right of his creation. No dictator, no counselor, no instructor, no teacher ever taught God. He is counselor. Isaiah 8, 12 says, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and find out knowledge and discretion. 
counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. I have strength. In the church of Laodicea, Jesus says to this church in Revelation 3, 18 and 19, I counsel you. Jesus giving counsel to the church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church, the church had it's been so watered down that you couldn't even tell they were a church any longer. Jesus said, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, white garments that you may be clothed, the shame of your nakedness that your shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see as many as I love. I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. The counsel of the Lord is that we should come to him, that we might gain repentance, that we might be clothed with the garments of salvation. He is counselor and his counsel to the people today. Would you come to me that you may find the garments of salvation? Calvary Chapel is a fellowship of believers in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our greatest desire is to know Christ and to be conformed into His image by the power of His Holy Spirit. If you would like more information about Calvary Chapel, or if you would like a copy of today's message, please contact us at 847-265-0646. That's 847-265-0646. Thank you so much for joining us today. And may the Lord richly bless you as you worship him today.